Hey, I'm so glad you're joining us uh, this weekend online, and uh, it's been good to hear from some of you. For some of you that call Grace Church your home, it's been almost a year since I've seen you, right? Since the uh, coronavirus kind of broke out, and I'm so glad we can connect this way. Love hearing from many of you. Thank you for kind of letting us know you're watching and connecting. We love you guys and want to walk alongside of you guys in this journey. And then we got to meet a whole bunch of others of you, right? The, even people from different states, and we're getting to hear from some of you as well. I'm so glad you can join us this way. It's been uh, quite an unusual year, and we've talked about that many times, and there's all kinds of new rhythms that begin to take place and things of that nature. One of the things I was thinking is this, as I'm talking to families, a lot of families would say one of the positives is they're kind of spending more time together as a family. And uh, I was talking to a family just recently and they said, hey, we play more games together and we sit around the table together. And, you know, I can remember uh, as my kids were growing up, I got three kids, right? And uh, as my kids were growing up, we liked to play games. And one of the games that we liked to play was this game called Old Maid, right? And uh, if you've never played Old Maid, this is a simple game, or so I thought, right? It's a simple game. You just hold your cards out there and there's a maid in there, Old Maid card, and uh, you begin to pick from each other's hand. And what you don't want to happen is you don't want to pick the Old Maid. Because at the end of the game, you don't want to have the Old Maid. It's a pretty simple game, right? So you can play with your little kids and whatever and whatnot. It's simple, I thought, until until Aaron became old enough to play with us, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, I realized that when Aaron would play with us, something began to happen. Uh, all of a sudden, I realized that he didn't get the concept of the game. Because as much as I tried to explain to him, you don't want to end up with the old maid, he did the direct opposite. He did everything he could when he had the old maid in his hand to make sure you didn't get that from him. Somehow in his mind, he thought to himself, if I end up with the old maid, then I win, right? And no matter how hard I tried to convince him, I couldn't convince him otherwise. And here's what would happen. We'd play old maid, and we could guarantee every time we played old maid, Aaron was going to lose. And every time, he was going to think he won, right? Because he had the old maid card, no matter how many times we convinced him. Why do I tell you that? Well, I don't want to play Old Maid with you, although that'd be kind of fun, right? But I don't want to play, but I would like to talk to you about life. I'd like to talk to you about your life. The fact of the matter is the stakes are significantly higher when it comes to our life than simply a game of Old Maid. And the truth is, many of us kind of play the game of life like Old Maid, right? And we hold on like Aaron to things in our life. Maybe it's values, opinions, philosophies, dreams, uh, definitions of success. We hold on to them thinking that we're winning only to find out that by holding on to them, we're actually losing. And I'm convinced of this, that the reason for that is that many of us, whether we've grown up in church or not, whether we would call ourselves a Christian or not, some of you are like, I, don't, I wouldn't even call myself a Christian. The reason for that, for us holding on to things in our life that we think causes us to win, but ultimately leads to us losing, is because many of us have a misunderstanding of the message and the mission of Jesus. Hey, let me explain what I mean. This is class participation, but I want you to do me a favor. If I were to ask you, I heard a theology professor, Gordon Fee, do this once. If I were to ask you to uh, sum up the message and the ministry of Jesus using one to three words, I'm curious what word you would pick. In fact, why don't you stop this right now and just kind of write it down somewhere. 
Just summarize Jesus' message and ministry in one, no more than three words. Go ahead and do that. Just, just do it. Did you write it down somewhere? What did you write down? It's interesting. Look at what you wrote down. I have done this several times since watching and hearing this from Professor Fee, and I've gotten all kinds of answers, right? The predominant answer that I get is love. Did you write that down? Love. And as much as that's a good answer and for God so loved the world, that's probably not the answer that best summarizes Jesus' message in his ministry. In fact, you might be shocked at how little he talked about love. <laughs> uh, some people would write down things like forgiveness, and whereas that's a big part of Jesus' message in ministry, it's probably not the predominant thing that he talked about and focused on. Uh, some people write down money, because they heard a preacher say that somewhere, right? Somebody uh, mentioned when I asked this, hell or heaven, or somebody said the golden rule. And here's what I know, whatever word you wrote down, whatever you attached to Jesus' message in ministry is how you're gonna filter what he came to do. You're gonna attach it to that. So Jesus was predominantly about love or forgiveness or the golden rule or whatever it is. What's fascinating is this, is that when you look at the life and the message and the ministry of Jesus, the best way to sum up his message, the best way to sum up his ministry, the thing that he was obsessed about, you ready? You gotta write it down somewhere, was the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's what he was obsessed about. That's why I, along with Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Aiden, wanna spend the next eight weeks hanging out in a book in the Bible called Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go there. Open it up, lay it in your laps, the book of Matthew. And we simply wanna hang out there because Matthew's one of the four gospels, or the four stories of Jesus, right? And in Matthew's gospel, his goal in writing this is to help us see Jesus through the lens of his most predominant focus, the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is the king, and that he came because he wanted to make sure he proclaimed, demonstrated, and taught about the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you something. If you get this wrong, if you, Christ follower or not, if you get this wrong, you're gonna end, out, end up playing out the game of life with the wrong rules, holding on to the wrong cards. Now today, all I wanna do is this, and I wanna introduce the conversation. We're gonna take this clear through Easter. We're gonna be in the book of Matthew, clear through Easter. And so today's gonna be an introduction. It's gonna feel like an introduction. You'll be like, there's more, isn't there? Yeah, the next eight weeks, right? But it starts in Matthew 4, is where I wanna to start today. Matthew 4. If you have your Bibles, just turn there. Matthew 4 says this, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And here's what he said. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 18 says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come, follow me and I'll send you to fish for people. And once they left their nets, they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee. They were preparing their nets. Jesus called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Verse 23. Jesus then went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, the place where they would worship, proclaiming, this is interesting, the good news of the, say the word out loud, of the what? Kingdom. 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him those who were ill, various diseases, suffering, severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, paralyzed, and he healed them. Such that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Here we have Jesus announcing the kingdom of heaven. He's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom of heaven. Somewhere over 80 times in the gospels, he's simply referencing it. He's saying this when he teaches the disciples how to pray. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. When he's preaching his very first sermon, he says, seek first the kingdom, God's kingdom. He simply teaches on the kingdom using parables. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven is not quite like you might think it is. Like there's a mystery to it. It's subtle. It's subversive. Matthew's whole point is that we recognize and respond to the king and his kingdom. That, that's the whole point of his gospel, is he wants us to see Jesus as the king, and he's talking about his kingdom. And so his point is recognize the kingdom and then respond to it. Well, for you and I to respond to the kingdom of heaven, we gotta first recognize what it is. That's where we gotta go today. So, so get a pen, I want you to write some things down. If you and I are gonna to respond to the king and his kingdom, we gotta recognize what is the kingdom. We gotta answer some questions. Where is it? What is it, right? How does it show up? We gotta answer the question, when is it coming? So let's start with this question. Where is the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> Where is the kingdom of heaven? Now, here's what I know. When, when in our day and age, when you're looking, when somebody says, hey, do you know where the kingdom of such and such is? We look on a map. I don't know if you know this or not. This is fascinating to me, but, but we have several kingdoms in our world, right? Uh, some are over in the Persian Gulf area, right? Bahran is a kingdom, right? And so that's a kingdom. There's, a, I think, somewhere around 2 million people in Bahran, right? And it, it would be a kingdom, a monarchy, uh, Saudi Arabia, right, uh, would be a kingdom. Uh, some would call it a dictatorial kingdom, that literally the person in charge, it's a hereditary, right? Uh, you come down to Amman, it's a kingdom, right? It's run by a sultan. It's a kingdom monarchy. Uh, some of you, when I say kingdom, you're like, oh, the queen. Like, that's, a, that's what you think, right? You think the United Kingdom, right? And queen Elizabeth and Princess Diana and all that. Although it's got a democratic parliamentary system of government along with that, there's a lot of kind of pageantry. But that's what you think. Uh, some of you may not think this. It may surprise you, but there's another kingdom, and you can check me on this. It's the Vatican City, right? Uh, almost a thousand people in this city-state called the Vatican City, where the monarch of the Vatican City is who? Is the Pope, right? It's kind of an ecclesiastical monarchy, right? And so here's what I know. When we, when we ask the question where, we think, oh, let's go to a map and find out where the kingdom of such and such is. But when you read about the kingdom in the Bible, we don't think in terms of realm. <clears throat> we think in terms of reign and rule. 
that the kingdom is where the king reigns and rules. I want you to write it down this way. Where is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the space where God reigns as king. That's how you need to think about it. When you look at the Greek and Hebrew words for kingdom, they refer not simply to a place, but they refer to an action, an activity. And the activity is that of reigning or ruling. And so therefore the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus talks about it, is the space where God reigns or rules. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of God. It means being ruled by God. It means God's running the show. Now, to understand this, I want you to stay with me for the next few minutes because then we need to go somewhere important, right? To understand the kingdom of heaven, literally we can trace it back clear to the beginning of God's story found in the book of Genesis. God's the king and he creates man in his image and he invites man to rule with him. Do you remember that? Right, let's go back to Genesis. You don't need to turn there, we'll throw it here, right? But here's what it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, and then what? Rule over the fish in the seas. First place we see rule, and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Well, what God is simply saying is, I want you to cultivate the creation, right? I want you to bring order where there might be chaos. He's saying, I'm inviting you as the king creator to join me in ruling this creation. At the very beginning of God's story, you see this idea. And, and then you go to the very end of God's story and you see it kind of ends with this idea of kingdom and reign. Here's what it says in Revelation. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God, lamb down the middle of the street of the city, on each side of the rivers to the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So this is the end of time, right? New heaven, new earth. No longer will be there any curse. Anybody, good news, give me a thumbs up out there. Good news, right? The throne of God, reign of God, and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Then it goes on to say, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will be, there, there will be no more night. There will be no need of a light or lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will, what? Say the word, what? Reign forever and ever. You see, this idea begins with this idea, God's inviting us to rule, ends with this idea, but something happened in the middle. Around about Genesis 3, you can check me on it, because right around Genesis 3, man starts to believe a different narrative. Man wants to decide what's right and wrong. And suddenly, look at my hands, everything that God created right side up goes upside down. All of a sudden, Cain kills his brother Abel. All of a sudden, there's such wickedness on the earth, God sends a flood. All of a sudden, in Genesis 11, you see man trying to build his alternative kingdom, building a tower to the sky. And when you get to Genesis 12, God chooses a man and blesses him. His name is Abraham. And he says, I'm choosing you because I want you and your seed 
to literally be a group of people that perpetuate my kingdom here on this earth. And as part of that story, the people of Abraham, right, find themselves eventually in slavery in Egypt. They're led out of Egypt by a guy named Moses. Ten Commandments and all of that. And right before Exodus 20, where you have the Ten Commandments, this idea of kingdom shows back up. Look what it says in Exodus. He's saying to the people, he shows them, now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God's like, I'm the king. You will be for me a what? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. He said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests representing me, the king, to the whole world. That's what he's saying. If you know the story, if you know the story, they struggled keeping their end of the bargain. Till eventually they looked at God the king and said, we want our own king. And most of those kings did anything but represent God the king. And that's where all of a sudden you get to the point in the story where you enter Jesus who became a man. And as a man, he did what we were intended to do. He was who we were intended to be. Jesus came as the king. But it wasn't as they expected. Look back at what it says in Matthew. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. I'm here. The king is here for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which leads to a question. Okay, okay, I get the fact the king's here. What is the kingdom of heaven? Which is a great question. And simply put, the kingdom of heaven is the right side up kingdom in an upside down world. That's what it is. You see, when God created, the world was right side up. Man decided to believe his own narrative, and all of a sudden the world went upside down. And when Jesus shows up, he is proclaiming a right-side-up message in an upside-down world. Maybe this will help make sense. You ever, you ever get lost? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ever get lost driving? Be honest. Uh, I, I didn't tell my wife I was going to tell this story, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness right away. But uh, when we were early married... Uh, I, I did most of the driving just because she would tell you that, one, I probably like to be in control a little bit in the car, right? But also my sense of direction, and we were driving somewhere, and I was so tired. And this place we had driven before, and uh, I usually was the one to drive it, but I got so tired, and she said, hey, Dan, let me drive for a minute. That'd be great. And I got in the passenger seat, and I fell asleep, right? I remember I fell asleep, and when I woke up, I didn't recognize anything, <laughs> Nothing looked familiar. And so I said to her, I said, where are we at? And she said, oh, we're just uh, on Route 70 looking for 270. And I'm like, we are? And I said, this was before GPS and all that, right? And we have a map. And I said, what do you mean we're on 70 looking for 270? And we kind of have a map. And it's like, uh-oh, the map probably ought to be like that. <laughs> and we were going the wrong way. Why? Because when the map was upside down, it felt like we were going the right way and we were heading the 
wrong way. Listen, listen, I'm going to tell you something. That's exactly what would describe our world today. Can I just be personal? It's exactly what describes many of your lives. We're going through life and we're reading the road signs and we think we're heading in the right direction and we can't figure out why we keep getting lost. And Jesus shows up and he says, hey, he turns the map right side up. And listen, as we go through Matthew, look here a second. When he does this, when he turns the map right side up, for some of us, a light bulb will come on. But I'm gonna be honest with you. For some of you, if you'll stick with us for these next eight weeks, it will be disorienting at first because we're so used, so adapted to an upside down world. We're so used to following an upside down map. And when Jesus comes and he turns the map around, it can be discombobulating because we're used to an upside down world with upside down values, upside down definitions of success, right, wrong, and purpose. You see, when Jesus came, the world was right side up. He invited Adam and Eve, rule with him. When God created, everything's right side up. Genesis three, all of a sudden that world got turned on its head. You see, here's what I know. Jesus is a king with an unexpected message and a totally unexpected method. When you read the story of Jesus, there's some things that will be confusing to you. In the middle of it, he's healing people. He's feeding thousands with a little boy's lunch. And they want to take him and, and force him to be their king. Uh, they, want to, they want to say, let's go take over. I mean, we got a guy leading us that can make bread out of nothing. He can heal the sick. I mean, if we got a guy who can do this kind of stuff, we can take over Rome. Let's revolt. And, and Jesus is like, no, I don't think you get what the kingdom is all about. Because the kingdom doesn't operate with upside down rules. Instead of revenge, let's go get them. The king taught forgiveness. Instead of power and greatness like Rome, he said power and greatness. And he pulled a little child to himself. And he said, they're more like a little child. Instead of change coming like a bulldozer, just grr, he said, no, it's more like a seed that you plant. Instead of being a king that's going to ride in on a stallion with a sword and take over, he said, no, it's more like a king who will carry his cross and die for the sake of the people. You see, some of what we're going to look at in Matthew is going to be disorienting because we've lived in this upside down world and it's, our equilibrium will be off at first. The fact of the matter is Jesus shows up in an upside-down world with a right-side-up kingdom, which begs this question. Begs this question. Well, when's it going to happen? So, so if the kingdom is, where, is the space where God reigns, if it's a right-side-up message in an upside-down world, then, then when's all this going to happen? Because some of you have heard about the kingdom of heaven, you're like, oh yeah, that's going to happen when Jesus comes back somewhere in the future. 
And you would be right because there's some passages that maybe would point to that. Matthew 25, which we're going to look at in this series. Uh, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like future. Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. And so there's a sense, well, the kingdom of heaven is like down the road. But you also find in the book of Matthew, Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like now a man who sowed good seed in his field. <laughs> it begs the question. Go ahead and ask it. Dan, is the kingdom of heaven future or is it right now? Get ready to write down my answer. The answer is yes. You're saying, what do you mean? Write it down this way. When is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is here right now, but not completely yet. <laughs> Go ahead and scratch your head. But let me explain it with an example that I think will make this pop for you. If I were to ask you, and I can't see you, so there's no shame. If I were to ask you, raise your hand if you know what June 6, 1944 commemorates. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, look around the room. Is anybody with you? <laughs> Probably a lot of you could raise your hand because you paid attention in history class. Some of you maybe remember this. Uh, but June 6, 1944 is what we commemorate as D-Day. It's D-Day. Uh, you're saying, what is D-Day? Well, on D-Day, something significant happened. The Allies, the Allied forces, trying to break into the continent of Europe, right? And uh, they knew that if they could, the war would be won. Everybody knew that's what they needed to do to win the war, but it was kept a secret because the Allies planned in secret because they knew if Hitler and the Nazis knew this is what they were planning, they would do everything to stop the landing on the beachhead. And if they had stopped the landing on the beachhead, history would have been very different. But on June 6, 1944, the amphibious landing of 160,000 soldiers on the beaches of Normandy, along with 24,000 paratroopers who floated down in the midst of that darkness, put the Allies in the beachhead. And all of a sudden, the Allies were within range of the German homeland. And for the first time, after months of planning and secrecy, they knew that if they could successfully win this beachhead, if they could get the beachhead, D-Day worked. The war was won. And you could see it in the headlines all over the paper with all kinds of celebration. D-Day worked. Listen, the end of the war on that day, June 6, 1944, the war was won. But if I ask you this, how many of you remember what the day May 7th, 1945, almost a year later commemorates? <laughs> maybe not as many of you had raised your hand. Some of you maybe are. And it represents VE Day. You're saying, what's that? Well, the war was won June 6, 1944. They had made their way to the beachhead. But it wasn't done yet. The matter of fact is it went on for almost a full year. More people died between D-Day when the war was won and May 7th, 1944 in Europe than any other time in the war. 
What happened was the Allied forces came across France and then ultimately into Germany. The Nazis pushed back. But town by town, the Allied forces crossed over the continent, freeing villages and towns along the way. On May 7th, 1945, a week after Hitler took his own life, it was declared VE Day, Victory Day in Europe. I don't want you to miss this. In D-Day, the war was won. On VE Day, the war was done. Listen, almost 2,000 years ago, the king came. The king came and he came into an upside down world with a right side up message. And they wanted, they wanted to kill him because of his right side up message. In fact, they made plans to kill him. Listen, listen. Which is exactly why he came. Because the moment they killed him, he stormed the beachhead. And he cried, it is finished. They buried him in a grave, he rose again. Why? Because he was the king who would come to literally rescue us from our sin. He would storm the beachhead of Satan's territory, the beachhead of sin and death, and he would declare victory. The war is won, but not completely done. And there's gonna come a day when he's coming back. You see, we live in a time where on the cross, Jesus said it's finished, the war was won, but it's not over yet. It's already, but not yet. We live between the times, so to speak. He's coming back, and the war that's won will be done. It's the kingdom of heaven. Which leads me to this last question for today. Well, then how is it demonstrated? Well, I think we see that back in Matthew 4. Just look at this with me. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Look what it says, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought all those who were ill, various diseases, suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, having seizures, paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. How's the kingdom show up? Well, let's just look at the king. Here's what I would write down. The kingdom of heaven is a message that is proclaimed. Don't miss that. And a way of life that is demonstrated. They go together. The kingdom of heaven is a message that's proclaimed. I don't want you to miss that he says it is the good news of the kingdom. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's a picture of a burnt out, the walls of Jerusalem are burnt out. And, and there's a picture of a watchman on the wall yelling because he can see somebody coming. And this is what he says, how beautiful are the feet of somebody who brings same thing, good news. Well, what would they have been doing? They would have brought the good news saying, the king is coming to rescue us. That's the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is the king who has come to rescue us. He died on the cross to rescue us. And here's what I know. The message that points to that king is demonstrated then by a life that's been changed by the king. Kingdom living is show and tell. 
That's what it is. When you begin to see right side up, you begin to start thinking right side up, and all of a sudden, you begin to turn your upside down living right side up. That's what happens. You attach your life to the right side up king. And all of a sudden, you recognize that the kingdom of heaven is the space where God rules. All of a sudden, you understand the kingdom of heaven is a right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world. It's going to look different and kind of weird and discombobulating. All of a sudden, you understand that the kingdom of heaven is here right now. The, it's been won, but it's not done. And so as we live and go on through our life, we live between the times. The kingdom of God is proclaimed and demonstrated. So, so here's the question. If that's what the kingdom of heaven is, if that's how I recognize it, then how do I respond to it? It's got, there's got to be a response. If this is what Jesus was obsessed with, then, then how do you, what's the response? Like, okay, Dan, I got it. I wrote it down. I, man, that's, didn't know that. What do I do? I think the answer is in what Jesus said. Look back at Matthew with me for a minute. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, and what did he say? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think that gives us uh, maybe a, the secret to the first response. I write this word down. How do you and I respond to the kingdom of heaven? How do we respond to the king of the kingdom of heaven? He says, repent. Literally, that Greek word means to change one's mind or purpose. Here's what he's saying. Repent. Recognize that you're living in an upside-down world. That's what he's saying. That's what repent means. He says, recognize that you're living by upside-down rules. Recognize you might be holding on to things, thinking that's what winning means, while all the while you're losing. Acknowledge that you might be holding on to values and tactics and opinions and viewpoints and definitions of success that might come out of an upside-down value system. Recognize you're reading from an upside-down map and that you're lost. He's saying, how do we respond to Jesus? We repent. We change our mind. What else do we do? Well, if I could borrow from Matthew's counterpart, huh? The book of Mark. In, when he said this, he said, Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, and then he adds a word, and believe. I think the second thing I'd write down is this, believe. The, the word literally means to believe, or write this down somewhere, to entrust yourself to. That's interesting. I think the second response is, I acknowledge that I'm in this upside down world, that I'm holding on to things that I thought were winning but are losing, and then I believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the right king. You know, here's the deal. You have a king. And I don't live in no monarch. I get it. You have a king. Somebody's ruling and reigning in your life. Ain't nobody tells me what to do. You just told me who your king was. You're the king. By the way, how, how's it working for you? You see what I mean? We all have a king. Somebody's ruling. 
And so believe is simply believe that you're lost and the king came to rescue. Believe that he's the right king and that his message is a right side up message. And that's like entrust yourself completely to him, not partially. God doesn't want to be part of your life. Believe means entrust yourself completely. Then what? Well, back to Matthew. So he says, repent, believe. And then as he's walking, he saw two brothers, Simon, Peter, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he says, come, Louis says, follow me, and I'll send you to fish for people. <laughs> I'd write this down somewhere. It's repent, believe, and follow. Repent, believe, and follow. Repent, believe, and follow. That word literally is two words put together where he says, come behind. What's he saying? He says, repent. This world I'm living in is upside down. I'm holding on to things that are, I thought were winning, but they're actually losing. I'm going to entrust myself to the king, and I'm going to line my life up behind him. I'm going to attach my life to him. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to learn from him. And, and you need to know that for some of us, that's going to be disorienting at first because we're so used to living in an upside-down world. He says something interesting to these guys, and this is where we're in. He says, come follow me. Repent, believe, come follow me, and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. He's just using an analogy because they were fishermen, Right? But it's interesting to me because for some of us following Jesus, we're kind of hoping it's more like jumping on a cruise ship, right? <laughs> we got on the cruise ship, and if we got Jesus in our corner, man, everything this upside-down world tells us is success and satisfaction, Jesus is going to provide for us. It's like carnival cruise ship with Jesus, right? It's going to be a great life. Jesus never says, come follow me, and we'll jump on a cruise ship. You know, there are some people that think, well, I follow Jesus in this upside-down world. I think it's jumping on a battleship. There's some people that think that, right? And, and somehow it's like, we're going to fight against this culture. And we're going to fight against this upside-down world. We're going to really, we're going to just, Jesus doesn't say, come follow me. and We'll get on this battleship and we'll really show that, that Roman government what's wrong. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, come follow me, let's get on a cruise ship. He doesn't say, come follow me, let's get on a battleship. He says, come follow me and let's get on a fishing boat. He says, because the kingdom of heaven is a right-side-up message in an upside-down world. And it's not exactly what you think. But he said, I want you, followers of Jesus, to spend the rest of your life between the times letting as many people as possible know that there is a king who's come to rescue them and he has a right side up message. I hope, I hope that you'll join us for these eight weeks as we talk about the king and his kingdom. So God, we're done. So grateful that Jesus came, that you love us. And I'm praying this series would change our mind about how we see life, what we're holding on to, that it would turn the map over for us and that it would help us to see your message, your mission, and your purpose and that we would line our lives up with you. And Father, for those who maybe have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, I pray that right now, watching this, right there in their living room, right there at their kitchen table,
that they simply would call out to you and say, God, I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus died for me in my place. And today I want to confess Jesus as my Savior, Lord, and King. God, I pray for any individual who might have prayed that as they line their life up now, attach their life to Christ, that you, Father, that you would use them in ways that would surprise them. I'm so thankful for the King and his kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.